Hello fellow time travelers, we are now part of the Direction Point Podcast Network, a podcast network specifically devoted to Doctor Who podcasts including the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, the Police Box in a Junkyard Podcast, and Time Streams. You can find the Direction Point Network at directionpoint.org. Check out all of our sister podcasts and enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers. I am Sasha from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I am Skip from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I'm Brooke. We're the Fiction Paradox, the only podcast dedicated to the BBC Books 8th Doctor Adventures in the whole world that we know of. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy, Enjoy your travels. travels. <laughs> <laughs> you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video junkyard podcast you are listening to the doctor who target book club podcast happy listening hello i am larry van mersbergen the host of the doctor who collectors podcast now that you're reading the doctor who target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the Pinnacle American Editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Where you want, I would throw it. Hi, this is Paul McGann, and I play the Doctor on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the crushing task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations because crushing like the pirate planet. I, I don't have any more goddamn ideas, sorry. It works. Yeah, well, thank God it does. My name is Tony Witt and today we have an equally crushing three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch-Safried. Hello, Alison. Hello. 
If you like what you're hearing, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've had to shrink them down into a super dense mass, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We now have a special episode in which we look at two, count them, two books that could be considered technically target. <laughs> one of them, a fan novelization by David Bishop, and one, an official novelization by James Goss, of the same script by Douglas Adams of The Pirate Planet. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Pirate Planet, adapted by David Bishop and again by James Goss, from the script by Douglas Adams, that aired from 9.30.78 to 10.21.78, published by the New Zealand Doctor Who Fan Club in September 1990, and by BBC Books in March 2021. As of this recording in October 2021, the Goss version is currently in print and available as an unabridged audiobook, 88 and 183 pages, respectively. Jesus. What did we get ourselves into? <laughs> a, lot. Right. a lot. A lot, a yes. lot. Yeah, so rather, what did I get you into? Because I'm the one that got us into this. Okay, let's get into this. The name Douglas Adams should already be familiar to you because of his masterpiece, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In fact, it was because he had sent the first episode of the radio version of Hitchhikers to the Doctor Who production office for reasons I have not been able to track down that he was commissioned to write this story. Along the way, a lot of the ideas that Adams included in the original version of this story would make their way back into Hitchhikers. For example, he originally wanted the second segment of The Key to Time from this story to be the continent of Africa, <laughs> which would have involved a group of intergalactic terraformers creating it, and that ends up in the first book of his own series, albeit slightly changed. It was his idea to make the segment something massive that would have huge ramifications if it were to be converted into its original form, though his first ideas involved having the Doctor quite quickly find the segment disguised as a piece of trash and then hiding this from Romana until he was done solving the main mystery for the oh, rest of the story. That would have been incredible. Oh my God. It would have been. <laughs> and I really wish they had gone that route. Very in character. Yes. Yeah. I, I really wish they had done that, but they decided not to. He also contributed another idea that I cannot even tell you about yet because they ended up using it in a later story this season. He doesn't want to spoil the innocence of our minds. I really don't. <laughs> Yours in particular, Allison. So yes, I, I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen with that, but Adams did contribute that idea as well. When we get to that story, I will tell you what idea it was that was originally that of Douglas Adams. Adams would eventually be hired to become script editor for the next season of the show contributing two more scripts that were also never novelized by Target, and which, as a result, have two versions apiece, City of Death 
and Shada. This happened because Adams reserved the right to adapt the scripts himself when he had, quote, run out of things to do, <laughs> unquote. This will also happen for much the same reasons to the two Dalek stories written by script editor Eric Sayward, though he himself eventually adapted those, for better or for worse. Unfortunately, as Adams died in 2001 at the age of 49, this never happened. On the other side of the world, in 1989, writer David Bishop was preparing to move to London from his native New Zealand when he volunteered to adapt this story for the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club. The fan club also adapted City of Death, Shada, and the two Sayward Dalek stories, though none were sold for profit and were made readily available to any fan who requested them. Wow, what an incredibly productive fan club to be putting out original material like that. Exactly. Yeah. They are, in fact, still all available online. You can find them at doctorwho.org.nz forward slash archive forward slash novelizations. And that's with the British and Australian spelling of novelizations with an S dot html the version we read is actually a re-edit done by another writer paul schoons who added some material from adam's original scripts the exact scripts used for the official novelization in fact which explains why some of the new material in both editions is almost exactly the same bishop himself would go on to write three official original bbc books as well as co-writing the virgin published book who killed kennedy you can imagine what that is about in 2017, James Goss wrote the first official novel based on the scripts for BBC Books. Goss began his association with Doctor Who in 2000, when he was placed in charge of the BBC's official website for the show. He went on to produce web-only animated stories such as Scream of the Shalka, and, as it turned out, a web version of Shada, done in 2003 with Paul McGann stepping in for Tom Baker. He has written short stories, audiobooks, novels, and no less than four books based on Douglas Adams' scripts, including one that was never filmed and which eventually became Adams' fourth Hitchhiker's novel, Life, the Universe, and Everything. And yes, we will be reading all four of them. <laughs> For this book, he vastly expanded on the storyline and incorporated many of the ideas from Adams' unused drafts, resulting in a book that is roughly 400 pages long. That, however is not the version we read, or at least not the version that all three of us read. <laughs> Instead, we read the BBC Books version released just this year with the Target logo, which still includes some new material, but is more of a straightforward novelization of the original. There's also an Audio Go version of the story, which is more of a dramatized audiobook, but it has nothing to do with either of these versions. You may think that's a lot of versions of the same Doctor Who story, but just wait till we get to Shada. <laughs> oh my god, Shada. Shada, Shada, Shada. So, we have two back covers. I'm going to ask for dramatic readings of both of them. So I'm going to let you two flip between you which one gets the Bishop version and which one gets the Goss version. <laughs> I don't have either one queued up yet, so Dalton, you, you may choose. I can do the Bishop version, if that's all right. Okay. That would be fine. Go ahead, Dalton. <laughs> the Doctor and Romana head for Califrax in search of the second segment of the all-powerful Key to Time. But something blocks their attempts to materialize on the barren, ice-covered planet. 
When the TARDIS does materialize, it is not on Califrax, but on the affluent world of Xanak, controlled by the captain's harsh regime. What is the secret behind Xanak's bountiful minds and its unseen leader? Who is really pulling the strings among the planet's rulers? What happened to Califrax? And where is the second segment? The Doctor, Romana, and Canine must battle the ghost of a tyrant ruler from the past and stop Earth becoming the next victim of Xanak, the pirate planet. I can tell you've been living in California <laughs> because of the way you pronounce Califrax. <laughs> <laughs> you pronounce it as Califrax each time. That's so cute. I love that. <laughs> Califrax, where you can find Sacramento and all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. No, Sacramento. Sac Sac yeah, exactly. All right, Allison, your turn on the gloss version. The hugely powerful Key to Time has been split into six segments, all of which have been disguised and hidden throughout time and space. Now the even more powerful White Guardian wants the Doctor to find the pieces. The first segment successfully retrieved, the Doctor, Romana, and K-9 trace the second segment of the key to the planet Calufrax. But when they arrive at exactly the right point in space, they find themselves on exactly the wrong planet. Xanak. Ruled by the mysterious captain, Xanak is a happy and prosperous planet. Mostly. If the mines run out of valuable minerals and the gems, the captain merely announces a new golden age and they fill up again. It's an economic miracle, so obviously something's very wrong. <laughs> ah, I love how he cribbed the joke from inside the script for that pack. Yes. Yes, yes. Or whoever did it. I don't think it was James Goss himself who wrote it, but they definitely cribbed it. So, first impressions. Dalton, when you got these, what was your first yeah, impression? Yeah, so looking at the PDF of the Bishop version, the Doctor has this look on his face where he's, like, missing his reading glasses. <laughs> but I, I did kind of enjoy the. you see him, you see the Captain, you see Romana, and then kind of the... Uh, why is my brain blanking out? You see the... The polyphase avatar? Uh, yes, yes. You see the polyphase avatar on him, but then you see his bridge in the background. You see the three pillars of that. So that already kind of sets up the main bad guy. I wish I could have seen it in color. I don't know that there is a color version. So just from that, it was kind of evocative. The James Goss version has a absolutely beautiful cover. These, yeah. these new releases by BBC Books are just stunning my my partner Wes when I got it uh, I pulled it out and he just stared and went ooh <laughs> so yeah it's just beautiful the color is amazing I think that the the captain and his bird friend <laughs> I'll just I'll just call it that um, Polly yeah Polly they take up most of of the cover of that but again it's like you get kind of this overbearing feeling from the captain and the bird even though it you know it doesn't look too menacing it still gives me like a kind of feeling mm. and then again like the back covers the descriptions immediately kind of make me invested in what's going to happen here i will say i kind of had an idea that the planet itself was going to be the key <laughs> but that didn't really take anything away from from the story for me I enjoyed kind of the journey of the doctor figuring out the mystery of what was going on there and really seeing the way that he reacted to that and also the way Romana 
reacted to that once she kind of gets brought in and it dawns on her holy shit (laughs) Uh, they're doing something horrendous this is another uh, I think last time I talked about how I was really excited to see where the story was going to go and I think this is another very strong entry at least in the form of these books I know that Tony you've you've told me that the the episodes are not this good they're they're not i i mean here's the thing the tv version is fine for what it is it's definitely douglas adams Mm -hmm. but it's very self-indulgent douglas adams as if there's any other kind but these two books both improve on that and i'll talk about that of course one thing you said that i thought was interesting you said that the captain looked overbearing mm-hmm. on the uh, Goss cover. Yeah. That's certainly better than Over the Top, which is the way the actor Bruce Purchase plays him on screen. It really is just... There's barely any scenery left for all the chewing oh that's God. going on. <laughs> it's just just a meal, basically. Allison, what was your first impression? How in the world am I going to get all of this read <laughs> and have decent comparative notes <laughs> in the time frame? <laughs> What have I agreed to? So, while Tony is, what, two, three miles away, I am going to confess my wrongdoings and see how much trouble I get into. <laughs> because my rifle doesn't reach that far. <laughs> <laughs> there would be some other barriers and complications, yes. Um, all right, so we have this episode in 1978, and then we have the Bishop fan novelization in 1990, And then we have, from what I think is 2012, an episode soundtrack with bridge narration by John Lisa. Yes. And a very nice interview with him afterwards. So when I was looking on Audible to see what was available, that came up. And, uh, Tony, this is when I think I texted you, perhaps in the dead of night, you know, for permission to listen to that first. Didn't get a hold of you and then listen to it anyway. So that's about two hours long, and it's exactly what it sounds like. So I actually heard the episodes first. Ah, okay. Which might have spoiled me because I knew it was coming, but I actually thought it would be a good way to... I, I didn't know how I was going to, in a timely manner, go back and forth between the other books. I wanted to get the overall framework of the story mm-hmm. uh, first so I wouldn't become just hopelessly unmoored and floating in a quarry which would be uh, situationally appropriate. <laughs> a flooded quarry, you know, it's a large space to float around it. Anyway, so it was absolutely delightful. And now I think Romano's fabulous because just even with the audio, I did not understand that Romano was funny as hell. Yeah. Uh, because that was not the case in the first adaptation we read. A little bit, but not much. So it was actually a, a joy to listen to. And I, I certainly agree about the, the captain scenery chewing, but hearing the doctor and Romano's banter was so nice that I... Uh, Found it a a good experience. So that's where I first got the story. And then to continue my transgressions. (laughs) uh, So there's the Goss book, which it looks like the original long form one came out in 2017. Is that right? Mm -hmm. There's an audio version of that one and not of the short form. So basically I decided I didn't have time to read the short one. So I listened to the nine to 11 hour audio. Of the long version, <laughs> because I could do that while I did other things. Oh, God. So, <laughs> hence, I'm talking about, okay, so they're called the Mourners, right? Right. Um, and then I read the fan book last, after having been instructed by Tony to read the Bishop and then the Goss 
I did the episode audio and then the long goss instead of on audio instead of the short goss in written form and then I did the bishop last. So, in other words, you did so everything that I was trying to keep you from having to do. You're on and your own. I did not suffer, but I suspect that you are doing so now. Mm. <laughs> well, let me explain to listeners what Allison's referring to when she says mourners. The long version of the Goss novel uses uh, original versions of the Douglas Adams scripts that were not used on television. So the Mentiads as they're properly called in the TV version and in these two versions, are called the Mourners in the long version. So that's where a lot of that's going on. There are some other changes. I'm not familiar with the extensiveness of those changes because unlike Allison, I did not read the long <laughs> version of the Goss novel. Oh, I didn't read it either. I listened to it. <laughs> Well, that makes all the difference then, doesn't it? <laughs> just, just to add to the things that I did wrong. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, at least you're prepared. So. Well, and I've just talked, there are six different versions available. That we yes, there about. are. And the reason that I did the, the Bishop one last is I started it a couple of weeks ago, and the PDF <laughs> was so tiny. I was trying to read it on my phone. I was having to enlarge different sections and move around a single page, and it was just not pragmatic until I could read it on a larger screen. Yeah, it's not formatted very well. And I was enjoying it, but like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this on the go. So it hits the, the switching around of the sequence. Got it. Well, remind me of all of this before we do Shada, because otherwise you may go and listen or watch all 12 versions, and there's just no <laughs> way that's going to happen. You may have to create a pamphlet or something. Of the six versions, I only uh, experienced three of them and in the incorrect order, but uh, a lot of it won't. A lot of it had to do with the, the pragmaticness of the, the logistics and time and space. See, folks, this is what we do for you. We put ourselves through so much trouble <laughs> to make sure that we are prepared for everything that we do. And Tony through so much emotional turmoil. Ah, well, I'm used to it by now. <laughs> so, Resident scapegoat. Can <laughs> we slap him on the rump and send him out into the desert? Mm. <laughs> Just means we have more to talk about. God, do we ever. Yes. <laughs> So, well, and then, Tony, you've seen the episodes that Dalton, you have not? I have not seen the. I was tempted to watch them, but I did not watch them. So all th three of us have read, seen, or watched uh, a different combination. Yes, we have. Now, here's the big question. Are those combinations worth having put ourselves through as much work as we've done? So let's talk about the basic story, first of all. What did you all think of the basic story? I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the idea of, one, them not finding the right planet right away, or at least not thinking they found the right planet right away. I enjoyed the way that, you know, usually we know there's the big bad and we're going to have some kind of cell that is going to be against the big bad that the doctors may be going to uh, become part of. But even, even though the Mintiads or minty ads however we want to pronounce it even though they're their own thing the doctor for the most part is doing his own separate bit from them and romana as well like there's so much going on <laughs> with with the the people of xanak in the town the minty ads that are on their own in their little secret mountain cave the captain with all of his crew in the on the bridge mm -hmm. why can't i think of the fucking word bridge <laughs> so 
there's just all of these segments and pieces moving around. And I thought that that really allowed the story to progress in a, in an interesting way because you get everyone interacting with the multiple parts throughout and segments. I see what you did there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's, it's probably no bigger than any other doctor who cast, but it certainly feels like a lot of mm-hmm. names, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Allison, you said before we started recording that you were just jotting down all the different names because there were so many of them. Yes. Well, let me add to my litany of offenses. I don't have any written notes. I started to take some on the, <laughs> on the Bishop novel at the beginning. Like I said, it became not pragmatic. So I just jotted down names just to jog my memory and things I want to talk about. I've got, Doctor, Romana, the Captain, Mr. Fibuli, the Polyphone Animatron and Canine, <laughs> Xantia slash Nurse, Planet Zerzanic and Califrax. We've got Balaton, the grandfather of Pralix and Mula, whose love interest is Sadsack Rebel Chemos, and then we have the Mourner slash Mintiads. That's that's a pretty good cast. And that's that's mm-hmm. it's common to have a cast that long, but not to have quite so much activity from from all of them. Yes. A couple of those were locations and no count as cast. But. And then Bishop ends up doing the interesting thing of naming a few of the unnamed characters from the script, mm. which is something that Goss doesn't do. So we've got two extra names there. Which uh, ones? The guy that Romana gives the jelly babies to. Oh, yes, yes. And one of the guards. I didn't remember those names, and I read and I read that one last, so that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because now, Dalton, you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. because you've read my notes, and I haven't reviewed them very recently, but it's the Bishop version in which he has the people of Xanak essentially rise up, or yes. is that the Goss version? It's yeah, the, it's the Bishop version where there's uh, kind of this idea of a revolution. Well, this is the most massive difference between the two, and I don't know what Goss cut, but or the I don't know was he was able to to largely chose uh, what was edited down, or if it was a a different editor. So I don't know what stayed and and went in the shorter version, but there mm-hmm. there's a huge scene in the Goss version wherein the Mintiads are essentially beaming information and mourning straight into the minds of the people who have gathered to redress the grievance. And it is uh, against their will. And Romana is the one who asks them to do it, if I'm recalling correctly. Is that That's in the... the long version. Yeah. That, because I don't remember that. And it's completely different from the, the riot uh, after the, the guard kills Bellaton that we have in the Bishop version. So I was trying to remember from the audio what happened in the episode because they're, they're so different from one another. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> do, do we have nothing from the actual citizens of Zanuck? Balaton doesn't get killed in the televised version at all. Oh. Yeah, so if I remember correctly, both authors do that. But they do it for completely different reasons, because Bishop starts the story with Balaton with that lovely prologue, Mm -hmm. where Balaton is a boy. (laughs) That beautiful, lovely prologue where a child is hunted. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, it, it, it is that, because it's not native to the story. It's not native to Douglas Adams' scripts at all. It's not there. And to have that sort of really strongly creative addition to a story... 
that isn't in the scripts at all is, you know, it's worthy of some of the better target authors like Ian Martyr, for instance, who makes things up out of whole cloth. It's got that same sort of feel to it. It totally sets up the idea of what the planet was like when uh, Queen Xantia was in power and then kind of how wonderful and easy everyone had it once the captain was in power. It's totally two different worlds. Yeah, they're they're basically under his control the whole time, but they have it so much easier compared to, you know, the idea of Balaton being chased and hunted by someone and Queen Xantia just up in her palace like watching it for fun Mm -hmm, exactly now that does open a big old plot hole (laughs) or i guess you could call it a plot hole it's actually for me it's something that bothered me in both versions and in the televised version the fact that the doctor talks about bandragenus 5 disappearing a hundred years ago Mm -hmm. which means that xanxia and the captain are at least a hundred years old well, and I think in the Goss version, I want to say that 200 years is thrown out. And I don't, really? think Bishop, I don't think Bishop specifies, but I think he does say hundreds at one point. But then we well, have this living person. But I, I just chalked it up to, eh, they're not humans, they're aliens. We don't know their lifespans. Possibly. And that may be the only way we can get around it, because otherwise Balaton on screen is probably about 70 or so. So it does make sense. But I thought they just went with... The two writers went with two slightly different timelines and causes. It's just a little longer. They might have, and that's a minor quibble. I, that's a very minor quibble for me compared to how much I just adore both of these books. But Well, it's, it completely changes whether or not Bellatron is or is not sympathetic. Yeah. Because in the Goss version, he's not especially sympathetic. No. Yeah. Um, he is the, the person who might or might not, you know, rat you out to the secret police mm-hmm. um just sort of the the loyalist um I, and once again it's it's challenging to not conflate versions here but i'm also able to separate them partly by what i read for, by what i listened to um because i only have so much space left between my ears mm-hmm. these days you know i could make an argument it would be a, a an inaccurate argument not very well made but i could make it i could make an argument that almost two-thirds of the stories we've read are about some combination, at least one, sometimes two or three, of British colonialism, the Soviet Union, and satellite states, and the Odyssey of coal miners. So, here we have mining. <laughs> here we have mining and the Soviets, arguably, where we have Balaton, who remembers the brutal era of royals mm-hmm. before this current industrialized mm-hmm. era. And it reminded me of, uh, I've heard before that in parts of China, the staunchest defenders of communism in the 70s and 80s were elderly women who remembered before. Yeah. Yeah. And as bad as certain things were, they remembered how bad other things were. Yes. And I thought it it gave a lot of roundness to, to, to Balaton that he is... He realizes how bad it was before. He does understand how bad it is now, but he has a much better sense of the fullness of what can happen to his grandchildren than they do. Yeah, and in the Bishop version, that is treated much more sympathetically, even though there is that lovely line when he gets shot down, uh, something along the lines of he ended his life the way he lived most of it on his knees. Yes. Yeah, which is just lovely. Well, in the Goss version, he's just one more person who's been brainwashed by the captain's combination of brutality and yes. propaganda. 
whereas in the bishop version, he has personal experience of something different and how this new world came to be. Balaton is so unsympathetic in the Goss version that at one point there's a line about him approaching his grandson with a pillow. Yeah. <laughs> because he's about to smother him. Yeah. yeah. It's like, Jesus. Yes, and it doesn't seem like to save him from a worse fate, he's just yeah. had it with this traitor to the state who might bring bad things upon him, but he's worried for himself and his status as head of household more than he is for his grandson's life. Exactly. And here's the thing for our listeners. If we're spending that much time on the two authors' treatment of Balaton, who's probably the most minor character in the televised version to the point that we had to remind you who that is, then you can imagine what both of them do with the other characters, which is pretty astonishing, especially his granddaughter Mula, because she gets fleshed out in both versions, and it's very different in both versions. I thought it was interesting that the two writers seem to like different characters. Yeah. That Bishop really likes Romana and Balaton, and Goss really likes Mula, and I think Chemos is like his self-loathing memory of the author's 20-something <laughs> self, I think. <laughs> So he gives a lot of time to Chemos, but a lot of it is fairly contemptuous about how Chemos is delusional about what it means to be a hero. Exactly. Yeah. Et cetera. But definitely different emphases. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Coming from a good place, but totally misguided. <laughs> yeah, precisely. In the, in the Goss version, the doctor absolutely despises Chemos. He doesn't seem to have anything nice to say about him when he gets into that inertia-canceling corridor. The doctor just sits and eats a jelly baby while he watches him run in place <laughs> until he finally decides, okay, enough's enough. I might as well go in and get him. And Bishop's version of the doctor doesn't treat Chemos quite that badly, but then his version of Chemos isn't quite as... Fatuous is probably the word I'm looking for. Fatuous, self-important in that way that 20-somethings have when they have a political consciousness. Well, and he has a very romantic idea of of what can be accomplished if only people will follow him. And he does, it's, they're not two versions really in conflict, it's just one's a lot more fleshed out and, like I said, arguably personal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and too romantic in his adoration of Mula. In ways, it feels like he's trying to kind of show off to her. Exactly, when she's actually the much more capable character. Yeah, and, and cooler I thought that Bishop Chemos was completely devoted to Mula, but Goss Chemos was trying to show off for Mula and Romana. Yeah, and for the Doctor to some degree. And then kind of like disappointed that only Mula's available mm -hmm. to them at the end. Or maybe she's not. Yeah. I could be wrong. That's essentially it. So what about the other characters? Especially we might as well tackle the big scene eater in the room. <laughs> that would be the Captain, who who is also rendered very differently by both authors. Well, and I left out that Bishop also really likes the captain considerably more than Goss does. Yes, mm -hmm. this is definitely true. Although they both do very sympathetic things with him. For Goss, it comes all at the end. It's like mm -hmm. a big reveal. Yeah. It actually, that's an, arguably another, one of the other biggest differences between the two is that Bishop establishes in one of the very first scenes with the captain that he is seeing this white angel screaming at him about death. And yeah. we don't see that till the end uh, with the Goss version. Yeah, exactly. Goss doesn't do the whole vision thing, but he does let us know that the captain's probably a little more sympathetic than he lets on. 
because he has been pretty much abused by Zanxia. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the Bishop version, the very first moment we get the captain, we have that vision of him being killed by Zanxia, even though he doesn't realize it's Zanxia. And there are these little breadcrumbs throughout the text to let you know, oh, maybe it's the nurse. Oh, the nurse may be Zanxia. Oh, she's the angel. She's the one who's going to kill him, which is just a lovely plot device. Yeah to use it may get a little overused at times but it's a lovely device to use well in the goss version turns out the captain actually loves mr fibulate uh, did he yes well not no. sexually but yes uh, oh loves him i thought you said yes. loathes him. <laughs> no no loves him actually loves him. yes actually was very attached to him perhaps more than anyone else other than the polyphase uh Avatron. that is true that is true. He does take uh, Mr. Fibuli's death very hard in both cases. <laughs> Takes it hard. Yeah, which is which is the second story in a row where we've had this kind of tyrant that once their second in command falls, mm-hmm. they fall apart. Yeah. And they have this really emotional reaction to it. Oh, that's right, because the graph in the cage is the same thing with Shalak. Mm-hmm. Or Shalak, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right. Wow. <laughs> kind of a shame that their script editor didn't note that parallelism but yeah you don't really notice it until you're looking at the books side by side yeah i thought that the bishop version was going to have a lot more fleshing out and emphasis on prelix but it actually turned out to be pretty similar in both yeah prelix is just a means to an end in both sad boy yeah a very sad boy the mentiads (laughs) or mourners, are treated very differently as well, because Bishop's version of the Mentiads is pretty much what you see on TV. Gox's version, slightly more different, slightly more bloodthirsty than they are on screen. Well, and more powerful than in the Bishop version. Much more powerful than in the Bishop version, leading to a much more satisfying ending in the Goss version than the Bishop version. The Bishop version is pretty much what you see on TV, whereas the Goss version ends somewhat differently. And by ending, I mean what happens to Zanxia at the very end. I'm trying to remember yeah. the difference. Uh, the difference is... I knew you were going to do this to me. The difference is this. <laughs> Let me scroll down there and find it. Uh, because on screen... She essentially gets shot by Chemos, if I remember correctly, and phases out of existence. But in the Bishop version, we get something somewhat similar to that. Whereas in the Goss version, it is the Mentiads who do the dispatching, if I remember correctly. All I have here is the way Zanxia is taken out in this version is far more satisfying than either of the two other versions. Isn't it Mula? Oh, here we go. Which is when Kimos shot her. I cannot believe. Location, it's here. Page 176 of 185 of the version I didn't actually read and I made a bullseye. All right. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. Yes. In the Goss version, Kimos shot her. Nope, never mind. You can't shoot holograms, of course. But the energy beam disrupted the protection of the nurse and also took out the black box. Her body flickered wobbled and then solidified. She threw back her head and was about to laugh when one of the badly dressed shabby minty ads blocked her path. Tiresome. All right, so it continues from here. So once again, this is a, yet another version that I have not yet beheld. <laughs> so, yeah, the Minty had listened to the screams lingering on for a long time, and they finally, they all broke into radiant grins. Dark. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. my extra commentary there. Mm-hmm. So yes, yes, they all participated in annihilating her. So that's the Goss version. Yeah, 
As one, the Mintiad stepped forward and stared at the nurse, and the combined life force of so many worlds drained out of them and into her. So, arguably, all of the planets that have been killed under her orders are participating in her annihilation. Which is an awesome idea. It really works quite well. What else? Romana in both versions. Like I said, I, 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 I'm not supposed to listen to the actual episode soundtrack first, but funny as hell. So now I think Romana's fabulous. Well, I should hope so. Yeah, She's like another version of the Doctor. She's just as sassy, just as quirky, just as, you know, tongue-in-cheek, winky-wink. Yeah, she's wonderful. Yes. <laughs> if, if Romana were always written by Douglas Adams, she would easily be one of the favorite companions. As it is, she is anyway. But you don't get this version of Romana in later stories to the same degree as you do here. Douglas Adams enjoys writing for her, which is why she also shines like this in City of Death, which is basically one of the best, if not the best, Doctor Who story from the original series. But in this one... All that byplay with the captain and thinking, oh, I could probably fix that squeaky arm of his if he'd let me. <laughs> yes. And the whole thing about, well, I'm, I'm a time lord. Well, not a time lord yet. I still have some exams to finish and all of those dinners that I have to eat. So boring. <laughs> <laughs> She's just really brilliant in both versions. And a nice contrast after Leela. So different in a complimentary way. And yet we get a Leela reference. We get a Leela reference when the doctor is uh, coming out of unconsciousness and he's saying no more Janus thorns. Yes, yes. <laughs> we get a Liz Shaw reference in the Bishop version. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Deep cut. I can't remember which version that's in now. In Bishop. It's, no, the Bishop, the version, Bishop yeah. version. That's right. That's what you just said. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> A little confused. So many versions, so little time. Yes. And it's all about that damn fridge. Mm -hmm. Because on screen, it's just a fridge. But in the Bishop version, it's a time safe that the third Doctor and Liz Shaw put together. And in the Goss version, it's also a time safe, but it's intrinsic to the TARDIS. Yeah, and it's just it's just mentioned in passing. It's basically like he opens it and closes it. Boom. Mm -hmm. Over. Yep. Done. <laughs> exactly. What other things, what specific things did you like from either version? I, I regret that I don't have quotes written down because there are so many good funny lines in both of them. And that's just as well because I have almost nothing but quotes. Yeah. Well, I, I will say, uh, so talking about both of them, since they're using the exact same scripts, I noticed that basically all of the speech is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. For the most mm -hmm. part, it's like word for word, exactly the same. So that was really interesting to see the way that the rest of the pros helped to support that. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, all the speaking, totally word for word, the same one to the next. I enjoyed... Canine's adversarial relationship with the Polyface Avatron. <laughs> yes. um, basically, the second he saw him, he noted that he was a better. Wanted to eat that bird. Yeah, I'm a better robot pet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he's got so much more personality now, doesn't he? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> he has his own thoughts and opinions about the Doctor and Romana. And he mostly keeps them to himself just to save the doctor's ego because 
his opinions about the doctor are not always all that complimentary. No. <laughs> Whereas he he adores Romana already. To the point that he thinks that she's prettier than the doctor is, which the doctor can't understand. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, I have to say, I do love that Goss is doing something that Bishop doesn't do, probably because Bishop was trying to get the story out there. He still manages to capture the spirit of a Douglas Adams script there. But Goss is also delving into the whole backstory of Target books to the point that we find out that the Doctor refers to the Tracer as the Tracer, and Romana wants to call it the Locator Muter Corps. Yes. Which is from the Ian Martyr novelization mm. of Repo's Operation. <laughs> yes. Mm. And I love that. I love that they have that little clashing even over what to call the damn thing. And she goes with a more complicated name, which Ian Martyr came up with. Yeah, which totally fits her character because she's the one mm-hmm. that's always, you know, looking at the manual and citing things that she's learned in school very much by the book. And the doctor's just like, whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> except she's also pretty rebellious herself because she talks about that component that they've given her to look at. And she says, oh, yeah, my tutor at school said that if you overclock these things that they burn out. But I never thought that that was yeah. the case. It'll fuse. Oh, oh it yep, it's fused. fused. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but there's also there's also the bit about her talking about the TARDIS where she says that it's basically an antique. You know, it's it's a version that I didn't study. Yeah, I studied this insect instead. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yes, the Galfrane Flutterwing. (laughs) Well, and a common trope to have a character like that be always wrong when it comes to the big decisions and the big showdowns, and she is not always right and not always wrong in a way that I think works for the person who has. All the education, the knowledge, reads all the manuals. She's not always wrong. She develops a a sense of proportion and situation very quickly in a way that it's common to have a Mm -hmm. a character like that stay relatively stagnant. She kind of has to because this is, as K-9 points out, this is only her second trip in the TARDIS and already (laughs) she's in danger. But she doesn't just, you know, at the end of each story, learn to live, laugh, love or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I should hope not. God, no. That would be awful. She doesn't just end every episode by kissing Kirk. <laughs> oh, God, no. Ugh, Lord, no. Though it's interesting the way the character arc between herself and the Doctor is different in each of the books because Bishop still has her respecting the Doctor fairly well, except when she's not, like, diving into his pocket to get jelly babies and than not telling him about it. But the Goss version has her coming around to the Doctor's way of thinking in a way that is very much stronger. For example, when she comes to the realization that it's better to have him around than not to have him around. And it's it's kind of a lovely moment when she comes to that, especially since they start off so adversarially and continue to be av- adversarial depending on the story. But what else? It would seem like the most obvious plot influence is kind of doing the magician's nephew. <laughs> okay, how well, so? Because remember the magician's nephew doesn't start with but ends with i forget which two kids are in that book is it eustace and jill i don't remember this has been 35 years but remember they go to the dead world where the last living creature is this queen who will eventually be the white witch from the land the witch in the world oh, oh. and 
the way that that world died is that she basically used it up. She was at war with, I think, her sister and uh, obtained some kind of curse or spell where basically instead of being defeated in that war, she killed everything in that world with one word. Mm. And she's telling the story to the children and they're horrified and they say something like, what about all all the people who lived in your world? And she says, well, what was their purpose if not to serve me? Ah, got it. And then she... She manages to tag along with them to the, the forest with the t pools that are entry ports to different worlds, including Narnia, and she tags along with them. And that's how she eventually arrives in Narnia. And it's a, it's a, they, as they are originally published, you learn this is how the White Witch came to control Narnia and keep it as an ice planet, etc. So a really similar plot here. Oh, you mean with Zanxia trying to... Yes, where Zanxia wasn't... Yeah, she didn't destroy the world with a word, but more like the worst of, of the Russian royals, where she's, you know, hunting children for sport, and she seems to party her world into near destruction <laughs> more than fight it into near destruction. Right. And I think we have a little different version in both novelizations. Mm -hmm. But then she finds a way to use other worlds, in this case, several... Well, she, she finds a new world, and in this case, she uses it to consume... She doesn't really find a new world. I guess she just finds a way near the destruction of her own world to use the captain's technology to transform her world to consume other worlds. And it's just an interesting sort of similarity in, in, of plot mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that kind of character for whom others exist only to, to feed her. Right. Right. And both Bishop and Goss pretty much nail that part of it. Yes. Which I, I like because the idea of a planet that's hollow now and wasn't just really annoys me. And I am not what you would call a physics person at all. <laughs> the idea of a planet that was not hollow, but now only has a three inch shell and nothing at the middle and still has gravity. Just, I, I, know, it's, I understand it's light sci-fi. I shouldn't think too hard about it. But yeah. I liked that story. Mm -hmm. What I really didn't like mm -hmm. was... Goss's history of the world since the captain came. Okay. Why was that? Economically and behaviorally, it was the most nonsensical, incoherent thing I could possibly imagine. <laughs> Please edit that out. That was far too harsh. <laughs> no. No, I'm going to ask you to amplify it. In, in what way did you well, find it nonsensical? And, because I think you're right, yeah. but I don't think it's Goss's fault. I think it's Adams's fault. Well, I don't remember what elements are in the episode audio that I heard, but it was different for Bishop. Bishop refers them to the to them being rich. Mm-hmm. Yes. But Gus describes the Zanakians, the residents of Zanak. The yeah. Zanakers. The Zanakers. Describes the Zanakers. <laughs> the the Zanakers. Well, as being very rich and very poor in ways that seem to change throughout the story. Okay. On the one hand, they now have tremendous wealth from minerals and, and metals and similar. And they have precious stones and precious metals, but they don't always have enough food. Mm -hmm. And they sit on hard furniture because they only have stones and metal. And it's sort of a Midas touch kind of story. But then we're told other times that they're fat and happy and indolent because they have all this wealth. Mm -hmm. But then the wealth is very... It's like having a stack of cash and nothing to buy and no one to buy it from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're not told that they're now 
in commerce with other planets, and they are almost certainly not because they're not supposed to believe that there are other planets. Only the captain and his inner crew know what's going on. We're told that they don't work, and sometimes there's not enough food, but then sometimes they're fat and happy, and they're not working, and it just doesn't describe at all any sort of economic human behavior. Right. And I think what's happening there is that Adams hadn't really thought all that through. Bishop is presenting the story without all of that layering, except for the repressive part, because he, of course, comes up with the revolution. So he's going to accentuate those parts. Goss is going to try to accentuate the bits about the richness, but also the poorness. And that's where there might be a bit of a problem there because it, it is reflective of the original Adams's scripts, but then Adams hadn't thought it through completely either. In fact, this is going to throw another spanner into it. The idea of Xanxia being between those time dams and being the only thing keeping her alive was meant to be a gloss on drug addiction. And that gets completely tossed out of the script not because it's a children's show but because there's just too much damn stuff in the scripts already the original scripts were woefully overwritten and the versions that we got on screen were very much chopped down by the script editor and by the producer and yeah i i think if you're seeing any confusion there about what life must really actually be like on xanak it, it's Adam's fault. <laughs> it's really not anything to do with Goss, though Goss may be forgiven for trying to get all that in because he wants to be as faithful as he can to the original vision. The problem is the original vision is bifurcated. Well, in the long version, he comes back to it over and over and over again. Like, he keeps pounding that nail in a way that I kept expecting to come together in a way that it never really did. No. Yeah, it doesn't do that in the short version. The short version mentions it maybe once or twice, and that's it. Yeah, it's it's brought up, but it's definitely not like harped on. If if anything, they make it seem like everyone's just living the good life mm-hmm. for most of it. Other other than clearly being you know under the rule of a tyrant. But I mean, there's a scene where one of the villagers gives Ramana like a handful of diamonds, mm-hmm. <laughs> like yes. it's nothing. Like it's nothing. They they mention frequently how there are just piles of gemstones just lying around in the streets and the doctor even notes that someone should come clean them up yes when sometimes they recognize them as wealth and sometimes they don't yeah that's the that's the thing and that's probably an inconsistency in the original scripts more than anything else but like goss harps on the idea that they are now lazy and complacent because they're rich but then we're told that they're not physically comfortable. There's not always enough food. Their their opulent houses are actually uncomfortable because they're all hard surfaces. Those things are not in the short version. It's mentioned so often that it just kind of threw me out of the story because it's so artificial and didn't seem to really cohere. Right. Well, uh, listeners, if you're going to read the long version, that inconsistency <laughs> is going to be in the long version. Anything else you did not like about either version? Because I'm betting that if your experience was much like mine, you had difficulty stopping yourself from writing, oh, excellent line, oh, that's great, oh, that's fantastic, because my notes are very laudatory of both versions. Slightly more of the Goss version, but definitely still laudatory of the Bishop version. Yeah, they were both terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these are very good. 
of my notes, I noticed, uh, so I have a PDF that I read on my computer of the Bishop version and a physical copy of the Goss version that I read. Since I read the Bishop first, I'm looking through my notes right now. I'm realizing that a lot of the things I have highlighted are more of the spoken word. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of the character interactions that way mm-hmm. with Goss's version. I tried, I, I don't have as much because once I started reading, I'm like, this is all the same. So then I was really focusing more on, you know, the meat <laughs> of the book. And I have, I have two pages full of just highlights of various lines and descriptions that just were really evocative and really kind of took me to the planet Mm -hmm. agreed i find it interesting that bishop also tries to make as many references to hitchhikers as he can he refers to something being like a brick with a slice of lemon wrapped around it yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah that is very much a hitchhiker's line and when he introduces romana in the bishop version when romana is introduced (laughs) they're having this war over the tardis lighting Mm-hmm. because the doctor likes to keep it you know day and night and she is having Earth trouble sl- she's having trouble sleeping because <laughs> she's got tardis lag or whatever and it's handled very differently in the goss version and both of them are different to the tv version as you might expect so just so many interesting things about the differences between them with so many lines that are worth quoting and worth talking about, like from the Bishop version. He mentions the Galactabank credit card, which is again Hitchhiker's reference. I'm looking now at the end of the Goss version I was supposed to have read. There's a whole long scene at the end of the longer version that's the Doctor and Romana sitting in a garden. Yeah. Just having a chat about their adventures. Yeah, it's not in the short version at all. From chapter 6... Long words were only invented to confuse the enemy and make your professor feel wanted. <laughs> I I know what that's like. I did like Romana's personal journey of her education in retrospect <laughs> throughout the <laughs> last two novels. The her estimation of various instructors increased or decreased in memory. <laughs> yes. I loved the captain in both versions was referred to as smelling like cooking meat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also both of them described him as having diesel breath. Yeah. <laughs> so this combining of mechanical man but also like he's he's meaty. He's a nice pork <laughs> a nice pork roast. <laughs> yes. In fact, that's one of the chapter titles in the Goss version. <laughs> oh, it's it's just hilarious. Yeah, and all the, all of his little his little lines that he would say, um, all the fires of night, the left frontal lobe of the sky demon. Oh uh, god, those things! <laughs> just, there's so many curled fangs of the sky demon. Fucking uh, hell! <laughs> just oh. so many. I'm just gonna start threatening to bleach people's bones. The the actor Bruce Purchase goes on about those in the DVD commentary, and it's like you did realize, don't you, that the captain is meant to be acting blustery. He's not blustery all the time, so that when you get those quieter scenes with the captain, he's still kind of blustery. Yeah, but that doesn't happen on the page, thank <laughs> goodness. Oh, good grief. <laughs> Great period of Hades. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> oh. And I, I do notice that Goss does do a bit more in the way of, of fiddling with the original dialogue, 
when the doctor tries to steal the second car, he mm-hmm. says it's like taking fish from a baby. Yes. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's pretty nice. Interesting, the, the fl- first flying car scene we have, wherein Chemos is explaining the economic mm-hmm. miracle. That's the doctor, does it seem like something's wrong with that? Like it's an economic miracle, of course there's something wrong with it. Interestingly, the most profound version of that, I thought, was the original audio. Mm-hmm. And then, I think, the Goss version, and then the Bishop version. Right. And you would expect that both the novelized versions would be sort of more darkly dramatic. Mm-hmm. But it was the original audio that was. And just, the cast is just so outstanding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else sorry uh just just a line that i really enjoyed when the doctor is trying to stop xanak from rematerializing around earth and he's communicating with the mentiads and he's trying you know trying to keep his cool and it just says the doctor lied in a tone that said cucumber sandwiches were even now being served (laughs) yes there are a lot of delightful lines in both mm-hmm. of these versions, and yeah. original material, not just from the episode. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't know, I don't know which material is from the scripts that wasn't used. Also, yeah, there's a line like that in chapter two, when the TARDIS has been thrown about, and Goss says Romana, he noted, still clung to the wall, even if she clung with the aplomb of someone waiting for the canapes to come round. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's a Romana, basically. <laughs> it's exactly right that even when she's in peril, she's got a certain coolness to her that is just absolutely lovely. And they're accentuated in different ways. The doctor winked at Romana. Romana, who had never winked before, winked back. It looked like <laughs> there was something in her eye. <laughs> yes. uh, there's the line when she's being taken away to the bridge. It says, even when she's dragged, she seemed to glide. <laughs> exactly. (laughs) This is something I should have gone back and reread and failed to. But at the end of the Goss version, Mula's basically the leader of the movement, isn't she? Yes, she is. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the case for the Bishop version. It absolutely is not. Uh, She is treated slightly better in the Bishop version than she is in the TV version, where she's just there as ornamentation. Oh, she's huge in the Long Goss version. Yeah. She's enormous in that version. As is Chemos, but usually as a positive-negative contrast. Well, Goss also has this interesting way of taking what were originally comedic moments in the TV version and making them tragic. Yeah, in a way that I actually like. The Doctor, for example, trying to explain what Xanak does to other planets, and both Romana, while Romana is repeating all of his words back to him, and saying she's just trying to help. And then Mueller says Zanuck back to him. On screen, it's a comic moment. In the Bishop version, it's kind of treated that way. In the Goss version, it's a moment of just incredible pathos. You've just got two authors that are very good doing their absolute best to render something that is very good. And they're, they're improving it, but in different ways. Even down to chapter titles. I, I love Goss's chapter titles. Like, chapter nine is Life's Fleeting But Plank's Constant. Oh, yes. <laughs> I adore this sort of thing. Well, there's also a generational difference where, and I don't know how old Bishop was, but if he's, you know, 
if he's writing this in 1989-90, he didn't grow up reading Hitchhiker's Guide. You know, he read that as an adult or possibly a teen or something, whereas Doss is someone who presumably grew up reading Hitchhiker's Guide. And I mean, not habitually, <laughs> but you can tell the sensibility of someone who grew up basically from teens on or, or from childhood reading Terry Pratchett and Douglas and sort of that style of humor. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels more modern. Yeah. Because it's not exactly the same style. It's the next generation of that style. Right. And yet Bishop is writing at a time when even the target novelizations had come of age. When we get to the later stories that are almost all written by the authors who originally wrote the TV versions, we're going to get novelizations that are very stylistically complex and robust compared to what we've had. And that's the kind of novelization we're seeing with the Bishop version. That's still basically the same story as on TV, but with enough tweaks to it that the bits that don't make sense suddenly do. And the slightly less successful bits are going to shine through a lot better than they would normally. Whereas Goss kind of just makes them sparkle, to be honest. I think that's the biggest difference between the two. So, are we ready for Goodreads? I think we're ready. I think so. I mean, I could literally go all night reading all these. these I I actually could totally go in for hearing more quotes because I'm ashamed of not having notes. There's so much, so many good lines. Well, basically, all, all I can say is to our readers, if you're wondering which version to read, go ahead and read both. I don't think you're going to be disappointed in either one. So, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.76 for the Bishop version and a whopping 4.11 for the Goss version. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davis gives both versions 3.75 stars and says of the Bishop version, it's very reminiscent of the original target range, even down to the Terrence Dick style prologue. Much of the book reflects what we saw on screen, but it's not a script-to-page job. There are quite a, f- a lot of improvements, not least to the two characters which I found most annoying on screen. Balaton is played as a comedy coward, which is quite quite wearing, despite him having little screen time. Here, he's given more of a reason to be in the story. The aforementioned prologue shows him as a child being terrorized by Queen Zanxia's guards, narrowly escaping when the captain ship crashes. Much later, he's murdered by some more guards, sparking a proper revolution, the scale of which we rarely, if ever, see on screen. The captain is much improved on the page as well. He's just as theatrical, but it's tempered by his intermittent visions of a ghostly Zanxia. His appearance is better, too. Here, he's definitely part mechanical rather than someone wearing a plastic-looking costume. Yeah, the costume on the screen is just awful. I did spot a couple of mistakes. The polyphase Avatron is said, just the once, to be bionic, a term that could rightly be used for the captain. The parrot, though, is a robot with no biological components. More irritating is the idea that the phrase piece of cake is a pun. 
It's a simile. <laughs> there may have been other errors, but I raced through the book and I was too engrossed to notice any. Of the Goss version, he writes, this one, as I expected after reading Scratchman, could almost be mistaken for the work of Douglas Adams, in exactly the way that Eric Sayward's attempts can't. <laughs> oh, sick burn there, and I know what he's talking about. I read it straight after the fan version and wasn't bored for a second. Where it does follow the TV version, it does so in the style of Adams. For example, we don't get a proper view of the captain straight away, and when we do see him, it's an inexplicable, undramatic reveal. Goss accurately describes this reveal, but says more or less, we might as well look at the captain now. <laughs> yes. The banality of this scene for me makes it funny. Like David Bishop's book, this one has a much more substantial captain. The over-the-top performance is still there, but his mechanical side is much more convincing than on screen, giving the character an air of menace. It may be that my score for these two books was inflated by my disappointment with the previous story, but if so, it's not by much. Van Turner gives the Bishop version five stars and says, Bishop adds a new dimension to the already larger-than-life character of the captain. By allowing the reader into the mind of the captain, the reader sees the visions he is seeing and sees things that one doesn't see on screen. It is for this, and for the truly brilliant storytelling, that I can't recommend this story highly enough. Fantastic story, beautifully told. And finally, Gordon Watson gives the Goss version four stars and says, Certainly a more enjoyable read than the original elongated hardback edition. <laughs> so he wasn't a fan of the 400-page version. <laughs> All right. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? I think for the Bishop version, I would say four, 4.25. And for the Goss, it would just be a little, little higher. So probably like 4.5. I think both of them handle the story really well. They bring a lot to it. There's a lot of really good moments character-wise. I never felt bored. I never felt like this was a slog, like, oh my god, could this be over with? It was just light and enjoyable from beginning to end, even when we knew that there was some nefarious stuff going on here. So I think for the second entry for The Key to Time, it really pleased me and again i'm looking forward to see where we go next okay and allison out of five stars what would you give each version well quick burn for the keys to time uh because not even douglas adams can make me interested <laughs> in that story but praise for both of the books so i let's see here i think nine hours for the long goss recording and then two hours for the episode soundtrack and i think four hours reading the uh bishop version i barely skimmed the surface of what i should have been comparing and came away with no notes <laughs> and yet i never got tired of the story so i enjoyed both of them very much i'm gonna go 3.75 for both of them all right and as for me i would say a 4.5 for the bishop version and a 4.75 for the goss version Mainly because I know that's high even for me, but these two books are really quite marvelous. I would not have been disappointed if it had just been the Bishop version. Having read some of the other fan novelizations from the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club, I know that this one stands out even for those. So it is something special already. Bishop is a fantastic writer anyway, and I've read his later work and know this to be true. 
James Goss, however, shines just a little more brightly. He puts a little more, I won't say effort into it, because that's making it sound like Bishop wasn't putting effort into it. But Goss puts enough into even the short version that it feels like something truly, truly special. There is a paragraph in chapter 12 that I'm going to read in full that may be one of my favorite paragraphs in a Doctor Who book ever. The Doctor and company are about to storm the bridge, and the Doctor is saying, it all comes down to this in the end. Once all the shouting and the cruelty are over, doesn't matter if it's a castle, a bunker, or the cockpit of a broken pirate ship, this is where it always ends sealed up like a tin of pilchards, a tin of panicking pilchards, planning one final desperate move. He turned back to the Mentiads, to Mula, to Chemos, Romana, and the robot dog. Let's put a stop to it. Something about that I adore, and it's enough to make me give him 0.25 slightly higher than Bishop. Well, thank you all, and thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we'll be releasing an episode custom-made for Halloween on All Hallows' Eve itself, that is if scheduling actually works out, <laughs> when Jenny Ingersoll joins us to discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of The Stones of Blood. Ooh. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all this fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.